Hello and welcome to this week's Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most singularly interesting of radio stations. And Happy New Year to you, dear listeners, from everyone at Navara Media. We have lots of exciting things to bring you this year, and as ever, you can find an array of audio, visual and written content to delight and edify at navaramedia.com. And keep your eyes on our social media as we roll out the Navara Media juggernaut through the coming year. This week, we're playing it the old way, and I'm joined by my Navara Media co-founder, Aaron Bustani, uh, and we'll be talking about a major issue which in some ways didn't seem to dominate uh, politics in the way I expected last year, but I think uh, will, if not dominate, uh, certainly colour much of the political conversation in the course of the next year uh, and will certainly impact on government capacity, and that is Brexit. Now... Obviously, uh, things have proceeded to pace over the course of the past year with Brexit. Uh, now, we had, I think, differing or quite similar but, but differing conclusions in the run-up to the, the referendum. Uh, I, with uh, all my scepticism of the European Union, was convinced that a Remain vote was probably the wisest thing uh, uh, to, to, to undertake. You were sort of, you know, tempted, I think, by a Lexit position and, and advocated it strongly during the campaign and realised that, uh, you know, close to the vote, you, you, you sort of switched uh, and advocated a Remain vote in the absence of any kind of serious Lexit campaign. Uh, so I guess the question to, to open with is whether either of our positions have changed profoundly since then. Mm, interesting. I mean, my mine change... Actually, to be honest, during the campaign itself, mine didn't change. Like you say, it was more like you infer. It was more of a strategic consideration. I don't really think the EU is a viable political organisation as it stands. Things can adapt and change and survive. I mean, that's the story of politics historically. Um, but I think it needs major reform, and I don't think it's capable of major reform simply by nature of what it is and by nature of how it's constituted, i.e. 27 member states, problems around collective action, the Franco-German axis, etc., etc. So I'm still pessimistic about the EU. Um, but the reason why I voted Remain in the end was because, like you said, I didn't think there was a, a sufficiently compelling case for Lexit. I thought that if we did leave, <clears throat> which was always a high probability, right? It was always 55-45, even in favourable polling to Remain, um, that we wouldn't be able to take the ball by the horns because we didn't have the civil society organisations, the influencers, the arguments, the institutions out there to do it. Um, but, I mean, firstly, we did leave. Initially, it looked terrible in so much that conversation was driven by the right. But then, of course, with the surprise snap general election, um, some of that was then recuperated back into conversations around what will Britain look like after this momentous rupture point, which is Brexit. Uh, and I think all of us were surprised by how left-wing that was. In terms of how much my mind has changed since then, since the election, I would say that, yes, considerably, I'm considerably more optimistic about the capacity of the British public for a socialist programme after leaving the EU. Uh, before, I wanted it to happen, but now I think it's it's not just plausible, it's highly possible. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I so uh, my assessment of the EU hasn't changed much like you. I, I'm very sceptical. Um, about about the politics of the European Union, um, I you know I wrote a, a very long piece for for the Navarra Media website before uh, 
the vote, which analysed some of the kind of you know long-standing structural tensions within the European Union, I don't think those have changed. Those those questions around its kind of democratic deficit, those questions um, around simply the sustainability of so kind of economically and intellectually vapid a project as the euro, um, you know, in, in the absence of a kind of federal, properly federal uh, European Union. Uh, so, so it, does, it doesn't seem to me that, that, that the European Union, as constituted, can endure for much longer. I am probably less optimistic about the future of the British state as well after, after Brexit, but that's because I'm probably more, just more pessimistic uh, than you about, the way, about whether we can achieve these things. Um, but are you more optimistic than you were? I'm, more, I'm, I'm probably more optimistic. Because you thought it was impossible I, before, yeah. right? Which is I mean, a reasonable. I, 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 given that that in the run up to the general election, I assumed Jeremy Corbyn would be out on his ear. Uh, that the, there would be a kind of in, a kind of rightward shift in all of politics, rather than what we've seen, which is actually polarisation, mm. right? So it's not as has been the story for many years. Um, that kind of you know long term gradual drag. Uh, rightwards, there is instead a kind of polarisation taking place. And that is not what I expected. I didn't expect uh, there to be so sharp a polarisation between, um, you know, between political views. So, so in that sense, it's hopeful. I mean, there are a lot of people in the political centre who, who think, oh, no, polarisation bad. I think polarisation often actually quite good. Um, and so, so that makes me more optimistic, yes. So I guess I'm a little more optimistic, but still pessimistic about the possibilities uh, uh, in the longer term, we'll come on to some of the reasons why I think, as we as we discussed around the issue of polarization, I think it was it was Hamilton or Madison who says before the American War of Independence, before the war, we were one third one third um, monarchists, one third indifferent, one third true blue, i.e., American patriots, and the the ambition there was to polarize the public, but you obviously wanted a social majority for independence, say sixty forty. So yes, polarization should always be welcome in politics if you if you think that you can you can win a critical mass of people over to your side mm, and yeah and the idea of course that polarization <clears throat> is something uh exclusively evil is something that is allied with the kind of technocracy which is at the center of kind of european politics or has been for the past few decades so i guess we should jump in and think you know where we are in terms of brexit i mean in terms of of you know uh h- how far it's progressed uh article 50 was triggered mm. um which, of course, triggers the statutory two-year negotiation period after which the UK leaves the EU, um, you know, barring the idea that it's somehow revocable, which is a legal grey area, as in the Miller case, but certainly, I think, a political impossibility. It would be politically impossible to, at the stroke of a pen, revoke Brexit, certainly if you wanted uh, any kind of future political career. <laughs> um, there's, you know, likely a transition period after, after Brexit, the EU... Um, doesn't want that to be indefinite. The EU wants a clean break by December 2020. Um, the first phase of negotiations have taken up a lot of time, but we seem to have reached kind of something to do, you know, so, some reasonable ground on kind of EU citizenship guarantees, to guarantees for EU citizens who are living here after you know, a certain um, uh, time, you know, time period. A kind of fudge on the Irish border uh, really a, a case of kicking the can down the road. It's curious that so many people are celebrating it because it doesn't seem to solve any of the issues to me at all. And those are what are going to come up actually this year. Uh, this year is when the serious negotiation begins, uh, serious kind of arguments about um, uh, you know, the, 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 the trade relationship between the two between the two entities, between the EU and, and, and the future UK state, that's when a lot of these, these issues around the Irish border will crop up yet again. Because did, you, did you see Farage's... Um, he interviewed Michel Barnier, I think, yesterday. 
I didn't see this. No. So he was sort of he spent the day on on Twitter, and obviously it was uh, doesn't have much else to do now. No, it's true. We never did. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, and a lot of it was relayed through the LBC sort of media outlets. So you know they were doing podcasts, radio shows, and it was live streamed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he said. He said that the implication from his conversation with Barnier was that there had been no talk whatsoever around immigration, which I can believe, yeah. um, and also trade. I think trade, personally, I'm quite optimistic about trade. If you were to say in, in descending order, I don't think there's actually a solution of any kind to the Irish border, of any kind. I think that seems to be, to be the most intractable. I can foresee a, a solution which is advantageous to both sides or acceptable to both sides on trade. Uh, we'll talk about it maybe a little bit later on. Um, on on the Irish border, I really can't. And then, of course, on immigration, um, I can't. That's kind of sandwiched between those two. And then passporting rights to the City of London, which is what the Brits are going to want. But by virtue of a trade agreement, which is mutually acceptable on everything else, uh, the Europeans won't want that. Um, so, yeah. On immigration in particular, I think it's just, uh, you know, take your preferences and what you want, like personally and morally, mm. uh, I think you have two kind of irreconcilable um, perspectives here. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And I think in the case of, of, of finance, which we'll come on to talk about in the economics of Brexit, but um, that, that, that I think is going to be, again, a major issue, which actually you know, will be decided probably by force <laughs> in the sense that, that the EU is the much larger entity. Uh, and uh, it, it will simply assert that size. Um, what's your sense of, of how this has been progressing legislatively? Because, I mean, we had a defeat of the government um, in the House. It, 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 there is now a parliamentary vote on the final terms of the deal. Um, that's, that, that amendment was successfully won. Um, that, that, that looked bad for Theresa May. And do you think it, it is a kind of meaningful form of taking back control? Well, it doesn't matter because we've got the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which is what's made all of this so strange because all of us are watching this and intuitively you think, well, the government's going to fall. She's... But we've never really been here before. It's a major constitutional change. It doesn't have... We know that two-thirds of MPs don't really want to do it. Um, a slight majority of the public wants it. The government doesn't really have a majority or a mandate for anything else, let alone this, uh, but the government can't fall. I mean, we're in kind of... This is new territory, um, I mean, you could say there was a de facto, there's a de facto similarity with the major government, but there was always the, the possibility of, you know, emotional confidence, general election. That, that seems impossible here. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think I think this is why um, people who sort of look forward to an early general election are, are unfortunately going to be disappointed. It seems very unlikely to me. I mean, the thing I thought that was striking about the passage of the bill through the Commons so, the, so it's now at it's now at its final kind of report stage. It will go to third reading, I think, on the eighteenth of December, and then it will pass to the Lords, um, where it will have go through the whole process again. It'll be an you know, opportunity for the Lords to lay amendments, which will be very interesting. Um, but but the government was defeated on on this this point. So Parliament does by statute get a vote. The government had kind of said, you know, we're going to give you a vote on on the final deal anyway, but it wasn't sufficient to to win over MPs. So they've asserted this kind of parliamentary right, um, which I think is quite interesting. Um, it, it's not, as some people think, a kind of vote on the terms of the deal. Uh, it's not clear that if Parliament rejects it, that they will be able to reopen negotiations. So it will still effectively be uh, a loaded gun to Parliament's head saying, well, accept the deal or 
you know, possibly will crash out with no deal at all. So, you know, in that sense, because, it's very, you know, let's imagine that, the, you know, you finally get to uh, an agreement and the agreement comes before Parliament to be voted on. And there's what, maybe a month before, you know, the final deadline. Um, well, the EU may, you know, if it's rejected by the British Parliament, the EU may not want to reopen negotiations, in which case uh, we're at a disadvantage because it's very unclear that we can unilaterally revoke Article 50. Uh, so, so this is, you know, so this, so, so the idea that 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 it's a particularly powerful tool in Parliament's arsenal, I think, is a bit overstated. I mean, also bear in mind that a lot of the powers we're recuperating are executive powers. They sit with the European Commission and the United States. I believe it's the president fundamentally who leads on external trade policy. Has to be ratified subsequently by the legislatures. But there's an agenda-setting power with the executive around external trade. And in Britain, we're not, I mean, you know, we don't really know. So there's a, there's, there is an argument for the prime minister and the executive to have these powers over external trade policy. There is an argument, um, but it's not really been made. And the problem with Brexit is it's a huge constitutional issue. It's a huge issue of trade uh, and it's a huge issue of social and economic policy. And on the first and third issues, clearly parliament has to play a role. On the second one, yes, arguably parliament should play a diminished role it can say yes or no, but it can't really amend because trade policy is a bit like that. I can see that argument. But again, the Tories haven't laid the groundwork there uh, and it's just a complete mess. Yeah, so this bill is passing to the Lords now. Um, the government has failed to issue the Scottish amendments that it said would be in the kind of third reading of the bill in the Commons. It said it's going to lay those in the House of Lords instead because, of course, there, are, there is a conflict with the Scottish government about what powers return to Westminster and what powers will be returned to the Scottish government. Um, that that how that will work is is unclear. What kind of amendments will be laid there is unclear. There are other things in the House of Lords that are interesting, which is that Theresa May doesn't have, uh, you know, a, a conservative majority in the Lords. There are loads of Liberal Democrat peers. It's like a hundred. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, and there you know, it's very possible that they'll cause some trouble because you know, it's not as if there's any mean of sanctioning uh, a Lord really. Throw them out. Um, the Lib Dems have how many MPs at the moment? Seven? <laughs> Eight? Ten? Um, yeah, I mean, but this is, this is you know, this is a problem... No, twelve, sorry, this my is apologies. A, this yeah. is a problem with the Lords. This is a problem with the Lords generally. Um, and, you know, this is this is not something I think that, that... And again, you know, it would be very weird to be relying on the Lords to do anything useful. The Lords is a kind of black box. You can't really tell what it's going to do at any particular time but the several things do concern me there is the Lords constitution committee which has done some very very interesting work on the withdrawal bill because they're they're concerned about the constitutional implications they're concerned about the henry VIII, henry the eighth powers they're concerned which are briefly flissant. so these are powers which uh give ministers the power to lay secondary legislation without um parliamentary consent so they can basically change um they, they, they can change pretty fundamental pieces of law without needing to go through parliament and the reason they say they need this is because of the way in which they're repatriating law that was in uh the eu body of law the aki um you know they, they need powers to, to, to kind of harmonize it with the domestic regimes ministers say oh well we're not going to use that to you know really change anything uh, politically or fundamentally controversial uh, but but we need it because otherwise the the time frame is so short that we and that's a reasonable argument right but there should probably be some constraint on the ability of ministers to just change the law at the drop of a hat i mean another a great example about the sort of interplay between executive and legislative or institutional power is the united states you know there's a bunch of things organizations created and this is relevant right because we're now going into a a political moment whose gravity is like a post-1945 era for Britain or, you know, the US. 
So you don't have the Pentagon until after 1945. There was a big argument between the military and the presidency as to who should have the codes for these new things called nuclear weapons. And, you know, thankfully, uh, the democratic sort of argument won there because we know that most, well, a lot of generals, certainly in the Korean conflict, were very pro using what they called, I think they called them, they were effectively small nuclear weapons. They called them battlefield. Low yield, yeah. You know, battlefield nuclear weapons. Very small, much smaller than, say, you know, little boy that was used in Hiroshima. Um, and that was a major moment in, you know, we talk about it in sort of the 20th, 20th and 21st century mythos surrounding the presidency. They have the nuclear codes. They're all powerful. But actually that role of president uh, has really, you know, it really accumulated lots of power as the 20th and 21st centuries have have proceeded and and maybe we'll see something similar in Britain. You know, if we talk about a presidential prime minister in British politics, after this moment, that could be possible. There are a number of ways this could play out. And again, what's so upsetting in a way is that I'm perfectly happy for Britain to be a parliamentary democracy. The whole thing about taking back control. If we're going to be a parliamentary democracy and we're going to invest loads of power in the leg- legislature, either House of Commons uh, or the House of Westminster, I'm, I'm cut- okay, that's good. There's an argument for that. But there is no, and it's not coming from the right, it's not coming from Farage. None of these fuckers actually know or think or care about any of this stuff. You know, where is trade policy going to sit? Uh, in terms of the declaration of war, these, are nothing, these aren't questions around the EU, but because of, it's such a profound constitutional shift, we can now address them. You know, in, in around a declaration of war, do we change uh, royal pro- powers of royal prerogative? You know, we just had the New Year's Honours list. Could we reform that? There's a bunch of stuff we could reform quite substantially now. And the reason why I think people should vote Labour in a following general election, even if they don't agree with the Brexit position, is that immediately after a Labour government, one of the things we could do, I think, or we would see, rather, I can't say we could do, because I'm meant to be an independent journalist, um, we could see is a constitutional convention, which at least would address some of the issues of a post, post-Brexit, post-EU Britain. Mm. And that's not going to come from the Tories. Yeah. So we'll be left with a fucking hodgepodge. Yeah, I mean, in, t- in, terms, of, in terms of this stuff, and I, I sort of... Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess. So, in terms of Brexit position, uh, there there is a kind of continual claim that circulates, which is that oh, the the public is changing its mind mm. on Brexit. Um, is that true? No. <laughs> uh, there was the, the my favorite one was the BMG poll, which said that Remain was now seven points ahead, ten if you took out the don't knows. Uh, but then I think on the day of the on the day of the referendum, BMG had Remain five ahead. Uh, I think what, so Remain got 48 and Leave got 51. I can believe that there's a margin of error the other way. I could believe that like Leave would win by 54 or Remain would win by 51. But that's the margin of error. I mean, I don't think there's been a 10% change one way or the other, no. Yeah, I mean, it does It does seem to me that, that though there is a little bit of movement, that it's it, it kind of seems to balance out over time. Um, the, the number of kind of leavers regretting are very small. Um, the number of Remainers being won over is also reasonably small. I think if um, it was but, played... Yeah, I'm just, just to clarify, I do think Remain could win. I'm not saying it couldn't, mm, but it's mm, not... Uh, yeah. But, but my, my, sense is, my sense is that there, isn't, uh, there really isn't, and if you look at the polling, there really isn't a kind of strong constituency for another referendum. And that just seems to me to be kind of a very sort of a very very minor politics uh, however well represented it sometimes is in the media um it seems to me to be very why is it so well represented in the media well it's a curious one and i think it's actually worth considering at, 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 at you know at some length and, and taking seriously is is that actually 
my sense is that for a lot of people in the media who, who are really het up about this and, you know, and in the establish establishment, generally someone like, you know, for instance, AC Grayling has become, you know, a little bit sort of uh, rather unhinged, in fact, over over Brexit. Uh, he's really become very intensely devoted to, to destroying Brexit. Um, and, and this is, I think, because f for the first time really in, in a long time, this is an issue which for these people touches home in a way that uh, even something like austerity uh, was only really a, a kind of notional injustice to a lot of them. So you can think these people, you know, some of whom I'm sure voted Tory, uh, these are people who were who, who are really touched by this issue politically for the first time. Because these are, these are people who go on European holidays, who like Europe, who like uh, the idea of kind of, you know, a, a nice, happy European family. Uh, but materially, that but still doesn't make sense, does it? Because well, they, they'll still I mean, go on holiday. Yeah, They're still they privileged still enough, they'll still be able to work there. But there is also a sense, because remember, so I, I think there's a there's a split actually here. And there's an older, there's an older generation of kind of sort of newspaper establishmentarians who kind of grew up in the aftermath of the Second World War. Yeah. Um, and who do not like uh, the idea of, of uh, entities leaving the European Union because the way in which the European Union was talked about um, in the, you know during British accession to it was that this is the thing that makes sure there is never a war in Europe again. Uh, you know that was a big big strand in the kind of you know sort of run up to 1973. Um, you know it's a real it's it's a real substantial part of that kind of guardian uh, uh, imagination. Do you think that's the primary reason? Because I, I think it's a reason. I'm I don't genuine, like, the you know, primary Alist reason, I mean... Alistair knows? Campbell, who's literally built a life on not believing in anything. I, Alistair Campbell, remember, is from the kind of the Blair period in which kind of the, the European Union is, is the form of cosmopolitanism, uh, which is nonetheless kind of not threatening, uh, which doesn't kind of, you know, involve any kind of... Colonial justice, or That's uh, or, or, or kind of uh, redemocratization. Uh, it's a kind of very kind of consumer oriented, uh, uh, you know. Because you know, it's the, 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 you think of how important the European Union was to the kind of early Blairite figures. Uh, you even have people like Mark Leonard, who was the kind of uh, whiz kid of the the early Blair period at the Home Office, not at the Foreign Office. Uh, kind of, you know, uh, spad guru creature, writes a book in which he says, you know, the ideal uh, international organisation is Visa, like a credit company. <laughs> you know, that's his model for international that. relations. I forgot that. Um, so, so this, this is, you know, that's... that's he was like 26 uh, and yeah, yeah. he like started his own think tank. Yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre. Can't do it these days. Can't get the credit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Visa's fault. Uh, anyway... Um, but I think you know. I think this this is part of that. That do you, you, know, do you that think sense. that's it? Then I think with Campbell, I, I can see it in particular because it almost became like a repository of left wing ideals and values without in any way being at odds with the existing uh, class relations, which characterise obviously not just the EU but Britain as well. And I think it became like a there must be a sort of uh, a pseudo psychological term for this, yeah, where I mean, you put your faith in this institution almost like a a wish fulfillment, and it's not guaranteed. It's not in your interpersonal relationships, like you know, wish fulfillment and a father figure. It, it's almost like it's almost like wish fulfillment, father figure, and God with Alastair Campbell, but progressive values are instantiated in the EU. There must be a word for this. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think I think maybe we've just come up with a I new think... sort of psychological condition. <laughs> I think I think the thing that's going on with that is that there is or there was a reasonable argument um, 
not only dur- during Thatcher and Major, but actually during the Blair administration as well, but people on the left of the Labour Party, not the kind of hard left that has always been pretty Eurosceptic, but the, the kind of soft left, the kind of, you know, who, who are concerned about civil liberties, who were very opposed to, uh, you know, to some of the measures taken by the Blair government, which incidentally, you know, uh, really was constrained actually by, by European courts over, uh, you know, some, some kind of attempts at, at sort of uh, migration crackdowns. Um, the uh, you know the, the sense for a long time has been that because the weak the the left has been weak domestically uh, that they could rely on the European courts to uh, at least curb the excesses of uh, you know kind of anti civil liberties uh, even some of the excesses of Thatcherite privatisation for instance um, you know ran up against uh, some kind of uh, EU break and 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 it so happens that although the vast majority of, of EU court decisions uh, have been, uh, if anything, neutral to probably somewhat deleterious in terms of workers' rights. Actually, very often in, in terms of Britain, which is bad on workers' rights anyway, they've actually been pretty good for us. So because the, the left has been weak domestically, it's often outsourced uh, its desire to kind of oppose these things to European courts, to structures of uh, international jurisprudence, to uh, you know EU regulations, stuff like that. So, so in that sense, I can understand that kind of someone on the soft left uh, desires the EU as a bulwark against what they perceive as a kind of deeply reactionary national political formation. But then, in, but, in the case of AC Grayling, look, AC Grayling, he was look. They said, AC, we're going to triple university tuition fees, and his response was, look, if you can't beat them, join them. I'm going to go start my own university. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, I wasn't thinking of AC Grayling. <laughs> he's faced the deeply. He he he's faced the deeply. Um, pressing issue in the area he works in higher education and he has a fatalism and yet he didn't have that same fatalism with the eu and i it is fascinating because you you wrote it down in the show notes for today and you know it is a really charged question why are so many people who literally forgot political antagonism for 30 years so charged by this and it has to be more than just it has, there's, there's something really deep to it. It has to be more than just they don't want to see, you know, the presence of conflict in the continent, yada, yada, yada. There's something very but I do, I visceral. But I do think the European Union becomes the lodestar of progressive values for mm. these people, and it has done uh, for, for, for many years. Uh, because it was never, you're never quite able to sell it with Blair. Maybe you could have done it in 1997 to about 2001, but uh, even then it would have been a bit difficult. Um, the European Union, because it's far off and you don't really see the worst part of it here, um, then, then you get, uh, you, it's, it's very easy to make that kind of, to make that kind of case. I mean, I think one of the things that sort of my favourite, um, or one of my favourite kind of Lexit people it's Richard Tuck, who's a political theorist who is at Harvard now, I think. He wrote, I love Richard Tuck. wrote a book called The Sleeping Sovereign, um, which is very, very good. It's actually a series of lectures. Very, very good. Interesting on, on kind of orig- origins of concepts of sovereignty. And he makes the point that um, for, for the left, uh, so, so one of the reasons that the Brexit campaign or the, the referendum campaign was so weird was that n- neither British politicians nor the British electorate are used to dealing with constitutional questions. Uh, and de- dealing with codified constitutional questions, which is why, um, you know, they treated it as, you know, essentially very similar to a general election campaign, right? The, the campaigning style was very similar to a general election. Um, you know, the, the, uh, he, he makes the point, basically, um, that constitutional decisions, once they are achieved, are basically outside the reach of kind of citizens' 
movements of populist political movements of popular politics. He says, you know, actually, it, it will be very difficult to fulfil the Yanis Varoufakis dream of kind of reforming the European Union. It would involve fundamental treaty change between many, many uh, nation states. It would, and the point of these big constitutional moments, like Maastricht, like uh, the you know on the t- treaty on the functioning of the, the European Union is to codify something and put it out of reach of kind of amendment without major, major uh, effort. The the equivalent moment would be the the foundational uh, moment of the United States. Uh, You create a constitution which is then more or less, you know, without kind of big kind of political movement, um, you know, out, you know, is the agreed terms on which you operate. Um, So the point he makes is to say that, well, actually... um, you know, the, the, the British left does not appreciate that because of, because of the accidents of the way in which uh, the British democratic system emerged, i.e. there was no real serious national bourgeois revolution, therefore there is no codified written constitution, and therefore uh, actually the British Parliament has enormous power in terms of the, the, the scope uh, of what it can do uh, in a way that's just not true uh, when it gives away those powers um, to kind of uh, constitutional organisations like the European Union, which has at its centre uh, institutions of international kind of jurisprudence um, and sort of treaty law, uh, which which constrains uh, the the governments of individual nation states. Now, I think there is something quite strong to this argument, and I think it's worth uh, taking seriously. Uh, I, I don't necessarily go all the way with it, because I think that there are actually serious constraints on the British. Uh, democratic system in a way that that he doesn't quite acknowledge but but i think that is quite a strong uh reproof to uh people who who see the eu as being uh you know the 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 home for a left project i mean if you yeah so let's go back to the us the us is the most successful republic in modern history you'd say sparta is more historically more successful obviously the republic of venice it's a continuous republic i think from say 600 ad to bloody uh, 70, well, till Napoleon, arguably, maybe slightly before then. But the American Republic's 250 years old. Um, we get the Declaration of Independence in 1776. We get the Articles of Confederation. We get the, uh, the US Constitution 10 years later. We get a civil war. So that tells you that constitutional matters are quite difficult to, uh, you know, have a steady, stable outcome for which have mass consent. And then, of course, even then, you have the Jim Crow laws until 68. You don't get universal suffrage until later on and so on. So, yeah, this idea that there will be a final constitutional moment, whether or not we stay in the EU, and that all of this will be appeased and resolved, is obviously deeply inadequate. And the question about a second referendum, I I, I think the tack that's being adopted almost by the Romaniacs is not a good one. They should be saying, look, our system of government is we're a parliamentary democracy, we're a constitutional monarchy, a parliamentary democracy, the largest party in parliament forms a government um, and then they try and implement their programmes to the best of their ability with the consent of the Houses of Parliament. And that's what they should try and do. This whole second referendum stuff is just, it's a, it is a road. I never thought I'd be saying this. Maybe I'm becoming like a fucking conservative. I'm becoming like Edmund Burke. It's a road to chaos. And now you see Farage talking about a referendum on the House of Lords. And I used to be a big fan of referenda. But now it's like, no, we have a general election. If you like their programme, vote for them. They'll get rid of the fucking House of Lords. And we're talking about the EU and... Um, oh, God, I've forgotten. Sorry, I've sweared then. Anyway, 
Um, I'll apologise or James can edit it out. They'll get rid of the House of Lords. Um, but yeah, it shouldn't be about, let's have a referendum for everything, every constitutional issue. Yeah. Uh, because there is a genius speech marks to uh, the English constitution. And it did work for a long time. And when you look at um, Fixed Term Parliament Act, when you look at the Brexit referendum, even when you look at the independence referendum to some extent, this is a, it's a mess. You can't carry on like this. And we need a means by which we can create constitutional reform in this country, which isn't like this and isn't about referenda and isn't chaotic and isn't heavy, heavily mediatised because the limits of the 19th century uncodified English constitution are now coming up, ag up against the realities of that nation state really falling apart. Uh, and we need to think quite seriously about how we deal with that. So the other side of this, and it's the side I think that allows us to segue nicely into the kind of policy aspect of this and the way in which the parties are dealing with Brexit and the way in which the kind of the, the debate has been conducted is that the response of some on the left to the stuff we're talking about is like, that's all very nice. But actually what drove the vote or one of the major factors in driving the vote was a deep, deep, deep hostility to migration. Um, and however much you want to say it's just an index of a kind of general powerlessness, um, that the revolt against, you know, the, the, the sentiments against migration that were expressed during the, the referendum were not determinant in, in the sense that they determine the way in which Brexit will eventually pan out. It does seem, nonetheless, that across the board, there is now a sense of having to, to kind of uh, at least rhetorically posture against migration. That includes the Labour Party. <laughs> um, well, I think I I think it's pretty clear that uh, that attacks on migration are yes are part and parcel historically of the way in which the Labour Party has positioned itself. Uh, but the current leadership has made much about kind of protecting or valuing migration, while at the same time attempting to pander, uh, at least rhetorically. Uh, or at least parts of the, the PLP attempt to pander rhetorically, uh, to a growing climate, and a climate that was turbocharged uh, by all of the stuff during the referendum. I think Jeremy Corbyn has and would continue to defend refugees in the face of what you're talking about. We obviously need to distinguish between primarily white intra-European migration, which is what will substantively change when we leave the EU. I'm not saying that to sort of press the right buttons. That is just, you know, that's the body of people that will be affected, that, 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 labour market of 500 million people, so to speak, we obviously need to distinguish between that and um, refugees. You know, in 2015, I think a million people tried to enter the EU. Uh, not all of them tried to claim uh, asylum, but, you know, it's a significant number of people, but they're two different bodies. So on the one hand, I think Labour's obviously moved in a more progressive direction on refugees, obviously, even if just rhetorically. Um, and I think on some policy issues, you see the beginnings of stuff, say, around Yarl's Wood. Diane Abbott is the Shadow Home Secretary, and she tweets stuff about shutting down Yarl's Wood, right? And she said it. On the other hand, on, yes, white European migration, I think you could arguably say that Corbyn's the right of Blair. Actually, not even arguably. He probably is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just indisputable. Personally, for me, and I, I haven't won many friends saying this amongst sort of left-leaning milieus in London, which is where we live. Again, I'm not attacking a, an elitist clique. This is where we live. I haven't won many friends by saying I would prefer, and this isn't how politics works, as a thought experiment, I would prefer to say triple the number of asylum applications we accept to 100,000. And yes, have a cap on, on EU migration. I would prefer that. Um, but 
I mean, that isn't what's going to happen either. I mean, if we if we have a capital migration, we probably wouldn't see a major shift in refugee policy until we change the government. But, you know, I, I do think we need to think quite uh, with quite a bit of nuance about this now. Well, that, I mean, that that but that's the, the argument that I would make is to say that, well, actually, you don't win. So one of the things that's often done is to say, well, you know, the EU is actually terrible on migration from outside its borders. And actually, it really, you know, it's really guilty of refoulement. It's guilty of, you know, leaving people to die in the Mediterranean. It's appalling if you want to come to the EU from outside of it. It's very, very, it's actually quite difficult. Um, and that, that that is a bad thing. And, uh, and you know, and, and then, you know, leaving the European Union will, will allow us to be better on that. But then that doesn't seem to actually pan out in terms of kind of actual policy proposals, right? It doesn't seem to, you know, this is usually used to say what well, to defend, uh, you know, the idea of clamping down on, on European migration without any kind of serious Farage, even engagement. Farage, with... Even Farage says I would want a changed status for Commonwealth citizens. Even Farage says that. But he does. It does. And I mean, you could you could argue, well, these are people from lower GDP countries, India, Ghana, the Caribbean, you know, I mean, and I, because he's, because he's a weird guy. I believe him when he says that. I believe, you know, I believe that Farage wants, you know, Empire 2.0 and much closer relations with the Commonwealth. I can believe that uh, because those are his politics. So, I mean, I'm not so sure about that. Um, well, the thing is, is that actually in any and case... And we will have to emphasise relationships with the Commonwealth once we leave the EU anyway. The thing is, is actually in any case that, that any effect on migration or freedom of movement is not going to happen for some time anyway, right? I mean, we're going to have freedom of movement until the end of the transitional period, at least. Um, it, it seems to me that that's clear. As, you know, and this is one of the things that throws the Tory Brexit policy into disarray, right? Which is you promise something on migration that you won't be able to deliver in the lifetime of this parliament, probably. You promise the end of ECJ supremacy, but actually you're going to end up in an agreement with the ECJ um, and probably some pretty close alignment with it anyway. You promise, uh, you know, a, a flourishing global free trade. And, you know, it seems to to me that that's uh, uh, as much a fantasy as ever. So, you know, Tory Brexit policy is all over the place, but I guess my question is, where, what is the Labour Brexit policy? Well, the Labour Brexit policy is to uh, is to not divide the Labour Parliamentary Party. Um, that said, at the same time, I mean, they're not in government um, and they have to hold the government to account, which they've, they've done to a, a decent extent. I think their position has probably been more useful ultimately than the whole second referendum Romaniac position. Uh, but I agree with you. It, it really is incumbent now on them and us to create policy solutions. I've said it before. I think we should have a green card system. You could say have four or five hundred thousand green cards issue a year. You politicise that. So what you'd say is there is a cap on migration. We are controlling borders. Five hundred thousand green cards are given out every year. Um, you'd have a certain amount given to EU nationals, which is broadly speaking, which would essentially be the number of people coming over already. And if the Tories want to politicise that issue and say we want to get it down to a hundred thousand. You're more than welcome. You'll, you'll have a recession. But at the moment, because the issue around immigration is so ambiguous, because there are so few metrics by which people can judge things, by which it can be seemingly managed by the state, that is feeding the right. We have to accept that. That is feeding an anti-immigration rhetoric, and it's feeding uh, right-wing politics in and beyond the Conservative Party, primarily beyond. But at the moment, it's kind of re sort of re reabsorbed. Yeah, right, it's a weird moment, party. right? Yeah, yeah. So I think until we do that, uh, I think we'll we'll be in a losing battle because they're pointing to things which we can't then falsify. Mm. I think if you have a green card system, which also, by the way, would be um, extracting migration from an economic rationality, 
uh, I think that'd be a great thing. And you can say, look, an Indian or a Bangladeshi or a Nigerian is just as likely to get the right to work here as somebody from France or Germany. But if it's a significant number of uh, cards, then it, it won't make much difference, right? But doesn't, doesn't the kind of Labour's position on this, and I want to move on from migration because it's, a, I guess, an issue with the, the wider uh, policy... Uh, or the kind of Brexit policy, is it is an exercise, and I agree with you, it's an exercise in studied ambiguity, it's a studied ambiguity in order not to split the parliamentary party, but also not to antagonise the various factions of the Labour base. And that's the problem, isn't it, is that, that actually there are two kind of distinct spirits in the Labour Party uh, base who don't agree on migration, who don't agree on uh, Brexit. Do you well, know? They, they certainly don't agree on the EU. I mean, yeah. we, know, we know that. There's yeah. a lot of polling on that. Um, and there's that great line. Who tweeted it? It was um, Stephen Bush from the New Statesman, and he said this this quote sums up all of politics. And the guy goes, "I've never had a government handout in my life, but I want to know when I'm getting where's my winter fuel allowance yeah, being paid." Yeah. And it's just like the people who'd be anti-immigration around much of the Labour base. I mean, we have all have contradictions, but this is a particularly weird area where we see that um, massively intensified. Um, so, yes, it, there are effectively two big poles of attraction around it. Uh, but A, it's probably more complex and that's probably more simple than that in so much as people make concessions, as we're currently seeing. And also there'll be a, a far broader variety of positions. Yeah, well. I mean, I guess my, my, other ty- my other question in policy is that is, is, is the, say the, the mantra of, you know, Labour figures who are being interviewed now on the question of Brexit is uh, it's going to be a jobs-first Brexit under the Labour Party. I mean, it strikes me as, frankly, a little bit of a vapid line, one that's open to attack, because uh, it's certainly open to a response that says, well, you know, the, the best way to retain jobs is to stay in the customs unions, to stay, in fact, within the EU. Um, and for, for a while, it looked a bit like the Labour Party was moving towards that kind of line. So some of Keir Starmer's public statements were... Uh, we're about moving towards, uh, you know, staying in the customs union, staying in the single market, maybe. But at Monday's PLP, it seemed very clear that the Labour Party leadership was not, in any, you know, in any means, minded uh, to 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 adopt a kind of pro customs union position. Um, so there's very obviously a division there within between the, Keir Starmer and the leader's office. Certainly within the parliamentary Labour Party as a whole, I think. Um, I think it's a, it's a disagreement about, about but definitions the, but my as point well, is right? the economic consequences are likely to be severe. You know, leaving is going to, have a, is going to be a big economic shock. Um, well, a shock? We don't know. But it's going to be... I think that's probably well, quite it might likely. Well, this it's might be a 50-year s- issue rather than a two-year. I mean, a 50-year thing isn't a shock, right? I mean, it's... Uh, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, it's semantics. But yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah and so, so the, the question then is, is that, it, you know, is it likely that we're going to see... You know, is, is Labour going to be brought to a kind of pro-customs union position, whether it wants to or not? I, you know, there's two schools of thought here, which says that you can be a member of the single market or you have access to the single market. Mm. I mean, if we're going to talk about a Canadian-style trade deal, and the difference is, of course, if we aren't in the single market as a member of the EEA or the EFTA, um, but we have a Canadian-style trade deal. It then allows us to also independently set trade policy with other parties, which, whether we like it or not, is what people voted for. People voted for lower immigration and for Britain to be sovereign and to make its own trade policies. I don't think that's particularly smart in a number of ways, but you know, it's disingenuous to say that the Leave vote didn't tacitly think that. Primarily, that's the irresponsibility of the Leave campaign. Primarily, that's the responsibility of David Cameron for not 
you know, framing the question appropriately or making that particularly clear to the electorate, but that's where we are. So we could have, broadly speaking, completely tariff-free access to the customs union, uh, but not be in the EEA or the EFTA. So we're going to have a bespoke arrangement, I think. So yeah, it is going to lend itself, whether we like it or not, to ambiguity. It is going to lend itself, because nobody's saying we're going to stay in the EEA. That's not going to happen. We're clearly going to have something like Canada. Well, the government's going to want something like Canada, Canada, Canada with passporting rights for the city, with no freedom of movement, and probably better on services. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's... So, I mean, you know, it seems to me I, I've been reading, you know, pieces from kind of pro-Lexit people. Like, I think the the, um, the, the most prominent are, are, are Joe Guinan and Tom Hanna, who, who have written uh, quite you know, a long piece for the IPPR uh, journal on, 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 you know, the, the political possibilities of Lexit, right? You know, it's kind of uh, industrial policy, uh, you know, reflation of, of various industries and so on. I think you know some of that is you know, convincing. I think to a certain degree, there's I have wider questions about the, the kind of proposition about you know the the, the 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 reflation of industries which won't actually don't seem to me to be sustainable any longer, yeah. and that that's a big and difficult question. The question of kind of localized. Uh, incidentally, I mean a lot of it would have been achievable within the EU. It's it's overstated the, the extent to which it would have been impossible. There are some things that would have been the procurement very stuff. I think yeah, that would have been hard. The regional investment bank stuff would have been hard. Most of the rest of it would have been, I think, fine. This you know the the stuff about. I mean the the big question for me is you know stuff in the Labour manifesto stuff like. Uh, uh, public ownership of the railway is going to be very difficult if you want to do it immediately because of the punitive clauses involved in PFI contracts, for instance. Uh, you know, th- th- all of this stuff is 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 going to be uh, is going to be very difficult. Actually, I think more difficult perhaps than is 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 widely realised. Nonetheless, I think there's a lot in 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 this argument that is kind of tacitly denied by the kind of pro EU left and people who say you know. That, 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 that that you know Lexit is is completely impossible. It's not. It's never been impossible. It's politically very difficult. I think. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that a lot of what one thinks about Brexit relies on how you think about the EU and how you think about its institutions. Whether you think of it in terms of kind of individual state actors within the European Union and their advantages, or whether you think about it in terms of kind of uh, you know neo functionalism, the kind of uh, the processes of integration and supranational institutions which operate independently of the, the nation states that make come up, I tend towards, uh, you know, a, a more realist position, one that, that that's interested in, in the individual, you know, advantages that accrue to states. But most of the left in Britain is not up to thinking in this way. It's not up to thinking about the task in this way. It's not, it doesn't really understand the EU. Uh, and, it, it, <laughs> it, you know, the, much of the left in Britain doesn't care for detail. It's not... Well, who does, right? I mean, yeah, I, mean I do. I well, do. No, I but care. The right, no, but sadly, it's the same with the right and the liberals as you, well. No, I agree. I mean, it's not a uniquely left problem at all. But, but, you know, one of the things I think that's important to leave behind at this point is the kind of positions of the 1970s, which is a different world, right? And, you know, it goes as much for the partisans of Europe, by the way, as it does for for some of the kind of uh, lexiteers. You know, I mean, again, this is a version of a larger structural question that we've talked about before, about periodization, but we conceive, you know, of the period of the classical workers' movement um, and today, say, kind of post-1970s being uh, analogous or discontinuous. And actually, one of the things I think you know, there's a strong case to be made that the arrays of, you know, the array of conceptions, tools, attitudes, modes of struggle uh, have transformed so profoundly, actually, as to, to kind of mark a different phase in the capital-labour relationship. And that means, uh, incidentally, there are causes and consequences of this, but 
but but you know at least one of those is the transformation in the relationship between market state and political structure uh, of which globalization was part sure but the development of the eu was another part uh, and if you you're trying to think seriously about what a modern left looks like then you actually have to think in terms of what it would mean to to exit that process which is not going to be uh, an act of time travel you can't you know, whatever date you want to put into your time travel clock, 1973, 1945, earlier, you know, whatever, that's not going to be possible as part of this. Yeah, I mean, my, I think my major argument for leaving the EU is it's uh, how it's situated more broadly within the global financial architecture, particularly the WTO. So take something like patent law. Uh, you can't have um, patent shorter than 20 years, I think, subject to the TRIPS agreement, um, WTO agreement. And so I think that's too long, right? 20 years, minimum 20 years. We have to rethink massively patent law because of the central role of information in newer technologies and how that leads to forms of monopoly and rent and so on. Um, so it's like you say, changing nature of capitalism and production means we need to change our understanding of how we respond. One of those is rents through intellectual property. That's why I'm a critic of the WTO, but that it doesn't help if we leave the EU and then we have the WTO right, as the, the major WTO actor. has major state aid rules anyway. Though. Yeah, they're, they're, so then you know. we would, and then do the exact same thing, but not within the EU, you know, just as Britain in the WTO. No, we have to leave, if we do leave the EU, um, and those rules behind, and we need to be clear as to why. And like you say, we can't just leave and then think we leave those things behind too, because actually there's a broader economic context at work, which is global. Um, so it can only be one step of a broader project, which it wasn't, you know, in the 1970s, it was a bit different, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th so one of the things I think that is distinctive about the British economy is how highly financialized it is, right? How dependent it is on finance capital, how dependent it is on the city of London. Um, now, that's what, 70 billion in tax receipts per annum. Um, now, if that goes, what prospect is there for a kind of functioning social democracy i mean let's imagine that corbyn's labor wins the next general election after brexit and the banks start to go and the various parts of finance capital go to hamburg or amsterdam or wherever what does that mean in terms of a domestic economy which doesn't have um much of a strong base outside of kind of you know this kind of deeply financialized uh sector i think people say well it, it can't happen you know because we speak english but i mean it's, <laughs> it has quite a lot of europe it has happened before right you know in, in the in the mid 17th century amsterdam was the trading maritime economic sort of hub of europe and most of its sort of finance class moved over to england after the glorious before and after the glorious revolution 1688 so it can and has happened um, and English is the lingua franca of the 21st century. So there's nothing stopping Dutch school kids being taught English from four and then being just... As I mean, they are. They do. Right? <laughs> they but there's, there's nothing stopping them, you know, effectively being bilingual in 20 years' time if a massively um, uh, invigorated Dutch or Belgian or German or Irish... Or Irish you know, but basically, all I'm saying is all the impediments to this can be massively overcome by change policy and um, and cultural arrangements and the incentives are there because like you said um, it's tens of billions of pounds of tax but also the economy of London I think the GDP of London per head is something like 100,000 plus a head maybe 110, 120,000 pound a head 
So there's loads of multipliers with all these effective, effective, uh, uh, valuable, quote unquote, high earning people. They rent nice places, they buy nice places, they buy expensive goods and services. So yes, lots of people are going to want these uh, industries and these individuals um, in Amsterdam, in Hamburg, in Paris, in Dublin. So I think it's it's highly likely. I mean, I, I, <laughs> the, the incentives are there. There's not really much of a, a reason. That, maybe not initially. I think it'll take time because pe- people have families. I mean, they want to live here. What happens without that tax take, right? Like, how do you... But it, it would take time. I think it would take 10, 20 years because people are living here. They've got families. They've got friends. I don't think it would happen overnight, which is, again, you don't want to overhype that. Yeah. But I think gradually you would, you would inevitably see a shift, wouldn't you? you know? Yeah, I mean, it just it, it, it seems to me that, that, that it, is a, it is a big question. It's a major question. You know, it's one aspect of a major question, which is, you know, how if you're serious about, you know, uh, the next government, you know, being very likely a Corbyn government, and probably faced with probably some major economic problems, not only in the sense that there are some people who will be very afraid of a Corbyn government, but that actually the way that Brexit seems to be panning out will probably have quite a significant effect, uh, you know, on the domestic economy. It's very likely that it will cause a recession, maybe a mild one, maybe a severe one. It's very likely it will have an effect on the currency. It's very likely that there will be significant capital flight. Now, all of that means serious problems for the kind of programme that, exists in the Labour Party manifesto. And that is one of the, the, the absences uh, in kind of discussion that worries what, what, me. What, what would be... I mean, I don't really... None of it really bothers... I mean, what would capital flight mean? It would mean that housing stock is a lot cheaper. We can't, you know, if we're going to model all of this, we can't just model the bad stuff. Yeah, we also yeah, yeah, need sure. to model the good stuff. So, OK, we'd probably have fewer people filling in you know, massive shortfalls in the labour market, particularly in the NHS, for instance. That's one. Two, yes, we'd have a massive... We'd have an end of the housing bubble. Uh, three, we have major multinationals leave. They take many skilled people with them. I mean, I don't think those are all huge problems. Yeah, I mean... The so housing one in particular. I mean, I, I'd like, welcome London sh- house prices. Yeah, no, I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, but yeah, I mean, there's also the question of FDI. There's also, you know, I mean, I, 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 my sense is that, that whatever benefits, um, you know, are, li- are possible, yeah. are, are also going to be, you know, going to take a long time to be visible. Oh, whereas no. actually the effects of... Of this stuff are going to be more immediate. So that then the question becomes how, how a kind of Mitterrand style, and again, you know, it's different. It would be different, but but the you know that kind of disciplinary effect of capital on domestic or kind of one nation uh, kind of socialist or, or social democratic policies, uh, like really strong social democratic policies. You know, how you avoid that effect? I mean, it's not you know I don't have the answer to that, but I really want to be talking about it. See, I don't think global institutions, I just don't think they have that. When you look at the US, right, so you've got, you know, the Chinese Communist Party now are the sort of the guarantors of the global free trade architecture. You look at the US, Trump could win a second term. Um, he, he, he probably won't, but I think he, I mean, he could. People shouldn't write that off. Um, would the global sort of, would the G8, the G20, would they want to isolate another major power you're seeing massive conflict inevitably. I mean, this is what, what's been defused is basically Trump's animosity towards the Chinese, right? That's been defused, it seems. It's no longer a major issue. Forget North Korea. That was the big thing, right? Uh, North Korea still obviously, nuclear war is still bad, but a trade war between China and the US would, could have been a major, major thing. And it hasn't happened. Um, so, I mean, I'm in two minds. I think, I, I think, yes, the more that Labour sticks to its guns, the better, quote-unquote, a socialist programme is. Yes, of course, we'll have significant capital flight. 
But at the same time, could you have the IMF flex its muscles like it did in the mid-70s? Possibly not, because there's far greater fragmentation within it. I mean, you know, look at the, the Europeans now, the level of military fragmentation in relation to Russia. Um, in, in regards to Ukraine, you know, you've got Russia seizing um, land for the first time since the formation of the, the Federation, since the end of the Cold War in Crimea a couple of years ago. Nobody's done anything. So, I mean, th that ability to act decisively, I wouldn't be so sure about. Okay. Uh, last question. Not much time left. A couple of minutes. Um, what's missing? What's missing in the Brexit debate? What do you think is missing? What do I think is missing? <laughs> well, I think an actual Brexit debate is missing, right? Like an, uh, something that actually takes seriously, to, that is sober about the degree of magical thinking on many sides about Brexit or, you know, whatever, both on right and left. A real assessment of the relatively minor status of Brexit within European politics as a whole. I think that's missing. Uh, an acknowledgement that other vectors in European uh, politics have real impacts on this stuff. And, you know, finally, actually, uh, you know, the pro-EU left has to realise that, you know, the hopes that European integration could strengthen the left have largely been fictional. Its opponents need to understand that their understanding of the union structure tends to be a bit reductive. Um, yeah, and the, the challenges uh, are, are important here. And talking of things like industrial strategy needs to be really nailed down. So in what context and how are you going to do it? You know, how are you going to do these things? I think matters much better, much more than saying we could do these things. I mean, around the whole idea of like the EU strengthening the left, I mean, in what country? If you think about the formation of the EU... But people thought maybe it might happen in the 70s that if capital yeah. was internationalised in this way, then maybe Labour yeah. would I mean, well. it, we, we, the, the, his, the historic sort of evidence, yeah, it does suggest otherwise. And in terms of what's missing in terms of how do we move forward, I mean, I can, I'll just say what I... You know, I always say we need think tanks and stuff like that. <laughs> but we do. But sadly, wealthy people are liberals and they're cha channelling all their money to silly things. But yeah, we do need people about what does a progressive migration policy look like? What does a progressive trade policy look like? I've said about the green card thing, to be substantive to answer your point about migration. In regard to trade, I would want Britain, France and the US all under left-wing governments to effectively create a, a protein organisation which rivals the WTO. That's it. Wow, this has been Navarra FM. Uh, we'll be back at the same time in the same place next week. Happy New Year and goodbye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.